important part of our project, which we thought of as very speculative at the time, concerned the emergence of artificial general intelligence. But then in the past few years, the sort of huge leaps that have been made in machine learning, particularly in the large language models like ChatGPT, which is OpenAI, or Google's BARD, we see many people sort of thinking that we're very close to seeing the emergence of a genuinely human-like cognition that's artificial general intelligence. And so my recent work has, to a large extent, been focused on these kinds of general questions about artificial general intelligence, about what it is to have a human-like cognitive processing mechanism, what it is to understand a language, and then kind of applying the answers to those questions to artificial systems. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Anandi Hathiangadi, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University. She was a fellow at SCAS in the autumn of 2008 and returned as a Pro Futura Scientia Fellow during the academic year of 2014-2015 and also in the autumn of 2017. Anandi Hatyangadi specializes in the philosophy of the mind and language and is currently involved in several interdisciplinary research projects about artificial intelligence. And this is the third episode in our theme, AI. Very welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio. Thank you. You are a philosopher working with projects within AI. What is your role in this field of research then? What do you bring to the table? I think that philosophers have a really important role to play, particularly in relation to some of these foundational questions, which we have been thinking about for a very long time, such as what is general intelligence or what is it that makes human intelligence or human thought and human language peculiar. These kinds of foundational questions are absolutely central to the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of cognitive science, and artificial systems are a fantastic kind of test case for many of our existing theories. It also spurs us on to think about some of these foundational questions in a new light. So for example, just the question whether it matters, whether you're made out of biological matter, right? Whether you have a brain, does that matter for thought or for consciousness? And it seems fairly clear that it doesn't, but that's a kind of philosophical question, right? Because that's not something that you're immediately going to discover strictly empirically. And then these questions about whether artificial systems have these various kind of hallmarks of human cognition, such as the capacity to reason or understand a natural language, those kinds of questions, well, in order to answer them adequately, you need to start with some account of what it is to reason, what it is to understand a language. And this is the kind of question that philosophers spend all day thinking about, right? This is our day job. And of course, the kind of philosophical investigation that we're going to be doing in this case, in these kinds of contexts, is empirically informed. We're not just exclusively sitting in the armchair and thinking about what it is to have a belief or what it is to reason or understand a language. Of course, it's extremely important to pay attention 
to take seriously the results of the other cognitive sciences, what linguists have to say and what psychologists have to say. And it's a sort of empirically informed metaphysical question, what it is to reason or to understand a natural language. And it seems to me like this is absolutely vital if we're going to come up with genuinely diagnostic tests of these capacities in artificial systems. So we need to first be able to answer these kind of foundational questions about what reasoning is, what it is to understand a language, and only then can we devise tests that will really be able to tell us whether those capacities can be observed in artificial systems. Very briefly, what is your research about? Well, I have very broad interests in philosophy, and I won't even attempt to go through all of them, but the things that are relevant to my work in artificial intelligence are really focused on two broad areas. One is epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and related phenomena such as evidence, belief formation, and such things as psychological phenomena such as confirmation bias and these sorts of matters that have a bearing on the way in which we can come to know or not know things. And then the other area that is relevant is the philosophy of mind, language, and cognitive science, where I've been working for a long time on the relation between thinking and cognition and the body, so how it is that thought can arise in human minds, also questions about the nature of thought, the nature of cognition, what it is to have a belief or what it is to think about something or other. So these are the two areas that have a sort of direct bearing on artificial intelligence. In the case of epistemology, of course, it has to do with the way in which digital media, social media, artificial intelligence may have an influence on the way in which knowledge spreads in society, how knowledge is stored, and how the spread of knowledge might be prevented, or how ignorance might be spread or misinformation spread. And then in the philosophy of mind, these questions about the nature of, for example, belief or what it is to reason, these kinds of questions have a new significance when we're thinking not about human minds, but about artificial minds. How did you get into the subject of artificial intelligence then? This is in some ways a very long story, in part because the... Uh, Relevance of the kind of foundational questions to artificial intelligence go way back. One of the founding platforms of the field that's called cognitive science, this is a sort of interdisciplinary field involving philosophy, psychology, linguistics, and computer science, among other disciplines. One of the founding platforms of that theory is what's called the computational theory of mind. So according to the computational theory of mind, the mind can be thought of as a kind of computer. According to this theory, your brain is, in a sense, analogous to the hardware of a computer, and your thoughts, your feelings, your conscious sensations, these are analogous to the software that you might find on a computer. And this picture has been very influential in the study of the mind, both from a kind of scientific perspective and also from a philosophical one. So one of the first papers I wrote as an undergraduate student in philosophy was about the so-called John Searle's Chinese room argument, in which Searle argues that artificial general intelligence, or what he calls strong AI, isn't possible. More recently, over the last decade or so, of course, there have been all these kind of 
astonishing advances in digital technologies, and these have been wonderful in many ways. I remember the days when I was a PhD student and used to go to the Whipple Library in Cambridge, and there was a little card catalog, and I would pull out the cards and look up the books, and now I just go onto Google Scholar, and everything is at my fingertips. So there's something kind of wonderful about the ways in which technology has influenced our lives. But at the same time, I think, especially around 2016, with various big events such as Brexit and the U.S. election, there was a lot of worrying about the ways in which maybe social media was having an impact on the way in which humans relate to each other. So there was concern about the spread of misinformation online, about the spread of conspiracy theories, the increase of polarization. And there was some thought that, you know, maybe there's something in the way in which these algorithms on social media work to distribute news and distribute content that have a bearing on our knowledge. So on the one hand, we have Google Scholar and these technological advances that seem to have a fantastic ability to spread knowledge. And then on the other hand, there seem to be certain kinds of digital technologies that one might worry, in fact, can lead to epistemic bubbles where people inside the bubble don't get access to information outside of the bubble or even worse, certain epistemic echo chambers where people will only listen to other people who are in their immediate group. And I think it was these kinds of issues that really got me interested in applying for research funding. So I have a project funded by Wallenberg. I'm not the PI, that's Magnus Ianqvist at the Center for Cultural Evolution. But in this project, one of the things we're investigating is the way in which social media and other digital technologies can have an influence on things like our knowledge or on our ignorance or polarization of belief. One part of the project, you know, in 2016 or whenever it was that we started applying, there's a part of the project that we viewed as kind of speculative, you know. It had to do with the emergence of artificial general intelligence. To some extent, we are using the tools of cultural evolution in this project to look at the spread of misinformation. But of course, the evolutionary perspective is very important when we're thinking about the emergence of new kinds of life forms. And so one important part of our project, which we thought of as very speculative at the time, concerned the emergence of artificial general intelligence. But then in the past few years, the sort of huge leaps that have been made in machine intelligence, machine learning, particularly in the large language models like ChatGPT, which is OpenAI, or Google's BARD, we see many people sort of thinking that we're very close to seeing the emergence of a genuinely human-like cognition that's artificial general intelligence. And so my recent work has, to a large extent, been focused on these kinds of general questions about artificial general intelligence, about what it is to have a human-like cognitive processing mechanism, what it is to understand a language, and then kind of applying the answers to those questions to artificial systems. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. One of the basic assumptions of cognitive science has been understanding the human mind in a way that's analogous to a computer. So that kind of perspective has really led to thinking of something like artificial general intelligence or what used to be called strong AI as really artificial intelligence that is in some important respects like human intelligence. 
And so if we want to understand what artificial general intelligence is, we need to understand what the target type of intelligence is in humans. And I think the notion of generality is kind of important here because this seems to be something that's very special to human cognition. Human cognitive systems seem to be unique in their flexibility. Humans are able to survive in a wide range of different environments, and we are able to do that not because we have sort of really fantastic physical capabilities. We're not especially fast compared to other animals. We don't have particularly thick fur that's going to help us live in cold climates and so on and so forth. But what we have is a cognitive system that allows us to do various things to manipulate our environment in a way that sort of makes the environment adapt to us rather than requiring that we adapt to the environment. And that is unquestionably a kind of cognitive achievement. It has something to do with the way in which we think rather than the way in which we are physically constituted. There are various other things that are unique about human cognition. We have produced language in a way that no other species on the planet has. We have created a bewildering array of cultural products. We have a great deal of knowledge. We have a great deal of skill at various things, including sort of cognitive skills like mathematics or choreographing dances. And this is something that we sort of excel at. Again, it seems to stem from the sort of general purpose mechanisms that we have, the sort of general purpose intelligence that we have, and its sort of remarkable flexibility. Also, I guess an interest in human level intelligence is important from a kind of commercial perspective, because if you want to develop a robot that's going to help humans out in everyday tasks like folding clothes or running the vacuum cleaner, picking the kids up from school, looking after grandma, those kinds of things, the sort of interaction that we have with artificial systems is likely to be much smoother if we're able to communicate with these artificial systems in human natural languages. One way in which we can think about what's special about human intelligence is in terms of these capacities. So capacity to understand and communicate using language, a capacity for complex thought, for abstract thought, and for reasoning, for example, logical reasoning, but also inductive reasonings or reasoning about evidence that one gets from one's senses. So we can think about what's special about human intelligence in terms of these capacities, or we can also think about what it is that underlies these capacities. And there are various hypotheses about what this general mechanism is that underlies all of this kind of very varied and rich kind of set of capacities that humans are able to have. And one of the things that's really core, that's really special about human thought, is the ability to communicate in a language. So one thing that's great about language, of course, is this kind of ability to faithfully convey information that's so much more rich and sophisticated than the kind of information that we could convey just using our physical bodies and observing one another's behavior alone. So that seems to be very important to our ability to work together as social beings and create culture. Another thing that seems to be very crucial to human cognition is our ability to think abstract thoughts. And so one question is, well, what links these two things together? And there's one hypothesis 
that I find very compelling, and it's the hypothesis that we have a kind of language of thought, that when we think, our thoughts are structured in a way that's very similar to the way in which our languages are structured. In particular, one thing that's similar to both is that there are logical relations between our thoughts. If you think all ravens are black, then that stands in a logical relation to the thought, well, this raven is black. And so if you have thoughts, you can make inferences in thoughts. And that's an important feature of thought that is very similar to natural language, because again, you have these terms like all and some, the sort of logical terms in the language, and those terms allow us to use language to then express these kinds of inferential relations, the logical relations that hold between sentences. So it seems like there are various features of thought that make it language-like and that can explain various phenomena relating to thought. And of course, one very important cognitive skill is the ability to understand a language. And it seems like, well, if thoughts are structured in a way that languages are structured, then it's very easy to give an account of what it is to understand a language. So large language models play an important role in the development of artificial general intelligence and all the tools we have already seen, like ChatGPT. How do large language models work and how do they differ from natural language? The way that you can think of a large language model is as a kind of network. So if you imagine a bunch of nodes in a network that are connected by lines, okay, and at one end of the network, you have what's called the input layer, and at the other end, you have the output layer, and you have lots of nodes and connections in between these two ends. And the way in which the large language models work, very, very roughly what they do is they take an input, which is going to be a word or a token as it's put, and then they predict the most likely next word. So for example, if you input the word once or once upon, you input that into the large language model, and the large language model is going to output the word a. And then that whole string, once upon a, is input again, and it outputs the word time. So you get once upon a time. And so this is how large language models work. They start with one word, that's input. They predict the most likely next word. And then those two words are input again. It predicts the most likely third word, and so on and so on, until you get a whole sentence. This is the sort of way in which the algorithm works. This is how they're set up. There are many details, many complex things, and there have been many advances in exactly the way in which this prediction is made. Large language models, some people say, are just, you know, autocomplete on steroids, or they're called stochastic parrots, right? They just mimic language that sounds sensible to a human ear, but they're not really understanding in and of themselves. I think maybe that kind of a view, just a knee-jerk response to viewing the structure and saying, well, that's not understanding language because it's just autocomplete on steroids. Well, that's maybe a little bit too quick. One of the reasons is if you think about the human brain and the human mind, well, I started off at the beginning suggesting that there is this analogy between a computer and you might think there's the hardware and then there's the software. But actually, when you think about the human mind, 
you might think that there are certain layers of complexity in between what I was thinking of as like the mind, cognition on the one hand, and the brain on the other. So there's these electrical impulses that are going on in your brain, but you can describe that at a certain level of, of abstraction as the computation of a kind of algorithm. And that algorithm that our brains are computing is not going to be immediately accessible to us, right? We can't introspect and figure out what algorithm our brains are computing. From our experience, it's just going to be the experience of thinking, but that experience is realized by a process that can be described by a certain kind of algorithm. That is, at least if you accept this kind of computational theory of mind. And so you might think about this kind of autocomplete style mechanism as operating at the level of the algorithm that operates in our human minds as well. So then the question really becomes, is there anything that is approaching understanding a natural language in these large language models? We know what they're doing at a certain level of abstraction, but is there a higher level of abstraction whereby we can genuinely assign, say, understanding of the natural language or thought. You recently gave a presentation entitled Look Under the Hood. Yes. What do you mean by that, Look Under the Hood? This was a kind of internal workshop with a group I'm working with at the Institute of Philosophy in London. And one of the things that we're interested in is how to assess whether an artificial system has general intelligence or can understand a language or can reason or can do any of these things that we take to be important. And sort of the traditional way in which language models and other artificial systems have been evaluated and the way in which it used to work or the way in which it has been working for a long time with many of these systems is that these artificial networks are trained on a certain body of data. So what happens during training is that the neural net is given some input and it calculates an output and then it's told whether it got it right or not. And then it goes back and it changes the weights in the nodes and it adjusts the procedure by which it arrives at its prediction of the most likely next word. And so It's trained on data in this way. It learns from data in this way. And the way in which these models have been tested previously has typically been against some data that's been withheld. So you withhold some data that's the test data, you train it on the training data, and then you use the test data to see if it can generalize from the training data to the test data. Now, the problem with the large language models like ChatGPT and BARD and so forth, is that they are trained on vast bodies of data. So it becomes much more difficult to retain some data, keep it out of the pool, and treat it as mere test data. And so what's been happening is that there's nothing left to test them on. And so one thing that people have been doing is just testing them on human tests, tests that have been devised to test for certain levels or certain abilities, certain knowledge in humans. So for example, the SAT or the LSAT, these kinds of general intelligence tests can be used to test the intelligence of an artificial system. But you might think that that is somewhat problematic. 
And one reason you might think it's problematic is that we use these tests on humans, or they've been devised to test human capabilities, and that involves certain kinds of background assumptions about the underlying cognitive capacities that are being tested by these systems. And so it might seem as if they're not legitimate. You can't just take a test that you might use for high school graduates and then use it on AI. You were mentioning it before, evolutionary thinking. I mean, humans, we have evolved our thinking, our reasoning. Can artificial intelligence systems like large language models learn to do the same or can they already do the same? There are various different kinds of models of artificial intelligence. Large language models are one kind, but there are also so-called evolutionary models where instead of being trained on regular data, you try to construct systems that are given an artificial environment and then evolve in that environment in order to study the way in which maybe something like general intelligence might emerge. I think there's no in-principle reason why an artificial system couldn't evolve, either through an evolutionary model or through these kinds of large language models. And one reason why is that, again, if you think about the kind of computer model of the mind and you think the brain is the hardware and the software is the cognition or the mind, it seems like what matters for human thinking is all happening at the level of the software. It doesn't really matter that that thinking is taking place in a brain or that it's realized by neural processes or electric impulses. It seems like that kind of thinking or speaking a language or understanding a language could just as well have taken place in a very different kind of system, such as an artificial system. I think Nick Bustrom calls this substrate independence. Traditionally, in philosophy of mind, it's been called multiple realizability. Even if you just think about other animals, you might think, well, you know, it's certainly possible for an octopus to experience pain, but an octopus is constructed in a very different way from the way we are. And so it would be kind of absurd to think that you had to be just like a human in order to experience pain. It seems like pain is as they say, multiply realizable, it could be realized in very different systems. And we can certainly imagine artificial systems also potentially being able to experience pain if they're structured in the right kind of a way, because that doesn't seem to have to do with the stuff that we're made out of, but something that's going on at the, as it were, software level. Some jobs, like my job as a science journalist and communicator, maybe it won't be done by me in the future, but by an AI. Yes, I think this is something that many people have been concerned about. And I think that one issue with the large language models that might make you feel reassured is that they still have the problem of so-called hallucinations. They're very good at producing grammatical, coherent, sensible text, but not necessarily text that's true. And this may be evidence that they're not genuinely understanding the questions and genuinely giving answers that they take to be true, because that's the kind of thing that you predict from a model that's really only paying attention to syntactic features, so the shape and form of the words, and predicting what's likely and not really doing that by looking at the meanings and what they're about. And then there's also the fact that large language models aren't hooked up to the real world. 
So it's hard to see how they could possibly know what's true or what's not true. And so at the present moment, given the way they are presently working, you can rest assured that for some time, the jobs of journalists will not, <laughs> will not go away. However, <laughs> that said, I think writers of screenplays and fiction, maybe that's more of a concern. But one thing that is probably a more positive spin on this is that certainly all of these people who work in creative fields will be able to use these tools to generate ideas or to generate parts of texts and so forth. It might certainly lead to easing some of the difficult aspects of writing, but I think it'll be a long time before they'll really be able to replace humans in these activities. You have been a fellow at SCAS in 2008, and then you returned as a Provotura Ciencia Fellow a few years later. What was your experience of the multi-interdisciplinary research environment here at the Collegium? I thought it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time to be here. I came back several times, so you can see that I liked it. Especially if you're interested in these kinds of questions that can only be answered together with research from other disciplines. It seems like this is the kind of ideal environment in which to pursue certain questions. I felt being here and being in this research community with people who are working on very different things gave me a different perspective on some of the problems that I was addressing in my research. And I think I developed new ways of thinking about those problems, as well as new research methods for addressing those issues that I was interested in that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't had the opportunity to be in this kind of interdisciplinary environment. So I think it's extremely fruitful and extremely valuable resource. Thank you very much for talking to me and to our listeners, of course. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Anandi Hatyangadi, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University and Fellow at SCAS in the autumn of 2008. She returned as a Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow during the academic year of 2014-2015 and in the autumn of 2017. We have heard more about her thoughts on both human and artificial general intelligence as well as natural language compared to large language models. And this was the third episode in our theme, Artificial Intelligence AI. The previous episode within these themes featured Eliel Camargo-Molina on When Technology Meets the Humanities, the Interdisciplinary World of AI, and Jan Komorowski on Life Science in Silico, Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning as Tools for New Discoveries. These are episodes 49 and 52, respectively. SCAS Talks features a broad variety of topics, which is a reflection of the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at the Collegium. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Anandi Hatyangadi once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.